reading from the New Testament this evening is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, on this day, we are especially reminded that you are a living God. You are not a stone God. You are not a God just of our imagination. But just as we are people and persons here, you are the person, the being, the Father and Lord. And we pray right now that you would make yourself known to us and make your Savior known to us this day. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight, we're going to conclude a series that we've been in on miracles, and it's just a wonderful timing because it concludes on Easter, which is really the miracle of miracles. And it's a miracle that I think gets at a question that mankind has been asking for forever, and that is, what is real? What is real? Well, how you would answer that question. I feel like in this day and age, we're, we get pushed to two different poles. The one is to say, what is real is what you can test and measure. It's the answer from science. But it's interesting, in the discipline of physics, for instance, they're questioning whether or not they really know what's real now. The more the discoveries are made into the universe, they begin to say, what can we really know? I was reading an article from uh, a well-known physic, physicist, physicist, thank you. <laughs> I knew I was going to mess that up. Anyway, uh, Menes Kafadas, and he, he outlines basically his reasonings in this article, why he's doubtful. First of all, he says, most of the universe is sub-empirical. It's invisible, and it's also infinite, so we can't really get our hands on to test it. The two-thirds of it we can actually see is dark matter or dark energy. And we haven't been successful to be able to, to see one particle of that. And basically, go so far to admit the standard model we've had is basically full of holes. And so science itself struggles. We can't be pushed to that pole and think, well, that's what will tell us what's real. But then way on the other side, part of a result of what we call as postmodernism is the belief that Everything and nothing is real. I was reading an article, and it was on the 24 things that self-aware people know. And I thought, I want to be self-aware. I'm going to read this article. 
And at number 12, I had to quit because it said, uh, number 12 is uh, to be a self-aware person, you have to know that beliefs are not real. And he used this analogy. He said, I want you to think about one of your guiding beliefs that you cherish. It's in your mind. Take it out of your mind. Put it in your hand. Open up your hand, and there's nothing there. Therefore, beliefs are not real. Well, aside from the logic that I was struggling with, um, you know, it really is sort of echoes what we've heard from one side, mysticism, Eastern mysticism, and it doesn't quite work, especially when you get to things like suffering. Uh, there was an article in Slate magazine, and the title was, Why I Ditched Buddhism. And it was someone that had made themselves a serious student for four years. And there were different reasons why he decided not to go on, but he said the one that really struggled with is the idea of Buddhism that teaches that the self is an illusion. And he said the result is this, it makes human suffering laughably trivial. Now, if you've someone that has had a trauma as a child, you deal with chronic illness, you experience prejudice on a daily basis, you know it's not illusion. It's real. And so we can't go to that side either and say everything and nothing is real. Now, the Bible, long before this discussion landed us here, guided us into something that's different, something that I think makes a lot of sense. First of all, you see in this passage the emphasis that what we see and touch is real. There is this re repetition of the word see. I don't know if you noticed that. One of the ways when you read and study the Bible, they say pay attention to words that repeat themselves. Well, what do we find? You know, we find the angel saying, come see the place where he laid, and then tell his disciples that he'll see them. And then when Jesus appears to the woman, they see him and they clasp his feet, and he goes, go tell my brothers, they'll see me in Galilee. This emphasis on sight. The New Testament teaches that the resurrection of Jesus was not a vision, it was not a hallucination from grief, but it was something real. In fact, the Apostle Paul would go on to say that as he was writing his letter to the Corinthians that Christ had appeared to 500 people, many of whom were living, that you could interview and verify. But whether you buy that or not, you must know that the Christian faith has always believed that everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, the real resurrection of Jesus. Yet at the same time, the Bible also says there is more than what we can see. The resurrection was more than just proof that there's life after death. In fact, the really good stuff would come later, meaning once they would get over the shock of the, re the resurrection and their own you know, bewilderment about it, they would begin to see what God had planned through the resurrection. And there are two things here especially I think we could give our time to in light of this text, and that is the resurrection brings us real power and real reconciliation. Real power and real reconciliation. So first of all, let's look at real power. We are impressed with real power, and rightly so. I decided to uh, Google the question, what is the most powerful thing in the universe? Anybody ever Googled that question? Does that anybody know? I, I didn't know. Does anybody want to take a guess? What's the most powerful thing in the universe? No wrong answers. What's that? Sun, what was that? Black holes, okay. Love, hey, there you are. Well, that, that is, 
All right, that's the end of the sermon. I don't really need to preach. I don't really need to preach. Uh, Amen. Well, just below love is something called a hypernova. It's 150, this is when a star 150 times larger than the sun explodes. And within a few seconds, it gives off 10 billion the time of energy the sun could ever give off. It's basically like a trillion, trillion plus a billion mega, megaton bomb. This is how much power comes out of it. I mean, that's impressive. And as you read this passage, you find words that not only emphasize see and touch, but there are power words in the passage, right? There's a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descends from heaven. That's a powerful place. There's lightning. And then he rolls back a stone would have, which would have been about two tons that's lodged in the circle that you had to push uphill because the way it got in there was they pushed it downhill. And then you find repetition of words like fear, afraid. I had us read the passage from Sinai when God appears on Mount Sinai because you find there's echoes here. This is the appearance of the Lord. There is lightning in the presence of the angels. There is quaking of the mountain. There is quaking of the ground. And all these demonstrations really are getting to something deeper that the New Testament teaches, and that's this, that the resurrection displayed the working of God's great might. That's what was going on. The working of God's great might. Now, human beings can be powerful in their might. I marvel. You know, I, some of you I know have probably run triathlons. I have to tell you that I grew up at a time when, like, your regular friends didn't do marathons and triathlons. And so it has bugged me somewhat, you know, because I'm just like, you know, if you can run one, then maybe I should try or something like that, you know. But, you know, power, we're impressed by power. You can run that. Uh, the, the folks that are able to do this on the, on the uh, you know, uh, gymnastics, with their, that, that to me is, how does that happen? I don't know. And then lifting, right? Uh, again, I was interested in power, so I looked up, what's the heaviest lift? The deadlift is like 1,150 pounds. But a back lift. Someone said, you know the back lift. Does anybody know how much the back lift? I mean, it's amazing. Over three tons. Over three tons. There was this guy named Paul Anderson who was a devout Christian. And that's why he could lift that much weight, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Don't pray a lot and try that on your own. You'll get a hernia. But, you know, as strong as he was, it wasn't powerful enough to fend off Bright's disease, which took his life when he was 61. And of course, it didn't raise him from the dead. For all the power we see in the universe and all the power we see demonstrated in our race, we can't get that one down. Only God can raise you from the dead. Now, science hopes one day, you know, hope one day that they're going to sort of you know, get to a place where they can patch this together and replace that. And I don't really want to see that person. I think it might look pretty strange. But we're not going to live forever. But power really is never neutral depending on who receives it and what they do with it. So you see two expressions here, or two results. Through these battle-hardened Roman soldiers, the effect of the power petrifies them. They tremble like dead men. 
These are not wimpy guys. They fought battles, but they tremble like dead men. And, you know, it reminded me of things that were said about some of the Roman emperors. Uh, of course, they would try to convince people that they were incredibly powerful like gods, except when it comes to thunderstorms. It was reported of Augustine, or rather not Augustine, Augustine, that during a thunderstorm, he would run and hide and put on a sealskin cap. And Caligula would bury himself in his cloak and roll around underneath his couch in agony. Great powerful men, but afraid of a thunderstorm. But there's another kind of joy, because the thing is, if you see God as your enemy, or you see him as your butler, or you see him, his power will only threaten you. Only will threaten. But there's another kind of power. You see it demonstrated in these women. It's a fearful joy. It's sort of like the joy a parent has when the baby's born. You know, you're, you're so excited, but you're like, ah, oh, what am I going to do now? I think I mentioned when, when uh, our first baby was born, we were leaving the hospital, I just kept thinking, why couldn't Meg have been a nurse? Because I was just so afraid to go home with this babe. You know, I wanted a professional there with me. But the real power, outside of the physical resurrection, we're told, that, that was a demonstration, but of what? It was pointing to saving power. Saving power. And the Apostle Paul talked quite a bit about this. Now, last night, we went and saw this film, Paul, the Apostle of Christ. I didn't even, we, I didn't even know it existed. The Washington Post actually wrote a favorable review on it, so we decided to go. And I actually ran into one of our members there, and, you know, he said, what movie are you see? And I was like, this is going to sound really bad. You know, the pastor's going to see the Apostle of Christ movie. But thankfully, they went to see it too. And... Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. But one of the things they do a great job on is they, they show you the, the power that he was enslaved to and the power he was liberated from. He was angry. He was murderous. And yet he, he came to know a power in a different way, a power that could suffer. So it's no surprise he, he writes in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Later, Paul will say his countrymen, they really thought power were signs done. Jesus always heard this from the Jewish community. Show us signs. For Greeks, it was wisdom, what you know. For Paul, you know, he had a couple different power trips. One of his power trips was the fact that he was smarter than all his classmates. One of them was he came from a really good family. The other was that he was morally upright. He was righteous. All these different things that were power for Paul until he came to know Jesus Christ. Now, for us moderns, we've got our version of saving power. And by saving power, I mean the thing that you look to to rescue you and to keep you safe and to give you hope in the future. For us, it's individualism. It's freedom to express my desire. That's my saving power. It might be money. It might be my work reputation. It might be technology or progress. But the Gospel says, actually... Those are faux powers. This is the power that Jesus' resurrection offers. Let me mention three briefly. First of all, the power of total forgiveness and acceptance. In the book of Romans, in the passage I just read, he says that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. What does that mean? That God, by His grace, makes unrighteous people righteous. Through Jesus Christ. 
You know, when you are guilty, you are your weakest. Guilty people are weak. Unrighteous people are weak. One, guilt will drain you. Now our culture will say ignore it or try to erase it, but that doesn't work. It stays with you. And then you spend all its energy trying to hide it and trying to rationalize it and trying to defend it. It drains you of power. But the gospel says through Christ, through God's Son, He comes, right, and He uh, it takes all our F's and gives us all His A's. We not only get the Congressional Medal of Honor, but He makes us pardon criminals. And so you find yourself righteous before God. And when you believe that no one has anything against you, and you believe you are totally loved and forgiven and accepted, you are powerful. You're free. You're not doing a bunch of stuff because of all the other stuff you're trying to do. Think about the energy we run off from day to day doing things out of fear or people-pleasing or guilt or all those things. It pulls power away, but when you're working off of love, you become powerful. A church becomes powerful. Energy and freedom. So power there. The second is power for hope amidst suffering. There are a few things more real to us than suffering. Right? For many people, they'll say, well, life sort of became real to me when I faced this suffering. And here's the distinct thing about the Christian faith. It's the only faith that teaches that God walks in our shoes. That God actually became a person and He suffered. He endured unbearable suffering and unspeakable grief. He suffered beyond our own suffering. And for this reason, He can give us hope because the resurrection shows that He was delivered from His suffering. He was delivered from His darkness. This quote from Tim Keller I think is helpful. As Luther taught, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Secularity cannot give you that. And religions that provide salvation through virtue and good works can't give it. Yet the great doctrine of the resurrection of the dead teaches we get our bodies back in a state of beauty and power that we can't imagine today. We get it all back, the love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory, joy, and strength. The resurrection says there is hope for your wound. There is hope for the disappointment of the way life ran out. There is hope for the longing. I mean, think about it. I mean, if the cards were dealt, so to speak, and you're someone that's in this room, likely you've got a pretty good hand. I'm not trying to minimize anybody's suffering here. But we could shift somewhere else in the world and you think, that's it? It's not it. Because God has said, it is not it. There is healing. There is restoration. There is life. This is what the resurrection is a sign of. But lastly, real power for change. I mean, we're always changing. But our change tends to be superficial. You know, we're always, we might change jobs, we might change friends, we might change hair color, we might even change gender. But you know what stays the same? All the fears, all the vices, all the addiction. We make all these changes, but that stuff doesn't go away. I'm always surprised, you know, I, I'm uh, now in my fifth decade, and how much I still feel like I'm a junior high. You know, I, I mean, the same things that I was, you know, afraid of then, I, I, they're still kind of there, right? I've changed. 
But how does real change, supernatural change, come? This is what it says about the resurrection in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul prays that we would see this. you got to see it before you can do it. And that's part of our problem. We don't see it. This is what he prays we'll see. He prays that we will see the immeasurable greatness of Christ's resurrection power toward us who believe. That we will see the immeasurable greatness of Christ's resurrection power in us. What I'm trying to say here is Easter is really the new year for Christians. New year is that time where we muster up our strength and our resolutions. New, Easter is that day for Christians. Easter is that day where I have power, where can, I can actually make resolutions, and I can actually change myself because of the resurrection of Christ. I can put to death what is unholy. I can live in what is righteous. But moving to our final point, the resurrection is not just a personal reality, it's communal. One of the questions when you read this passage is, where are the disciples? Where are they? You have Mary Magdalene who was just, you know, she was a rock the entire time. Her courage, she is never away from Jesus' side. She's there, another woman, Mary. Well, the disciples, the Gospel of John tells us, are behind locked doors, afraid of being killed by the people that killed Jesus. I always think about that scene like if you've seen West Side Story, after the rumble and Riff is killed, and the gang just scatters, and they're just running around the dark streets trying to find each other, Right? They're lost and they're afraid. Well, the disciples scatter when Jesus is arrested. And you can imagine they're running around to find each other. But when they find each other, they don't find strength. They just feed one another's fear. You can imagine, too, that there was probably arguments and tensions. Like, what are we going to do now? Why say we do this? No, we shouldn't do that. The same people are after us. Just that fear that you and I, that feeds one another. But probably worse was what they dealt with in silence. And that was the weight of their guilt and their shame. I mentioned middle school, and you know, even though it was decades away, and even though God has forgiven me for every little sin, how often I think about this one scene. We were in, uh, you know, gym class. I don't know if they still call it gym class. You know, and you know, you had to wear these like shorts this big and tube socks that high. And anyway, that was that in of itself was traumatic. Uh, <laughs> Even the thought that you had to go to gym class was traumatic. But um, you know, it was there with a friend of mine, and there were some older guys there. And this friend of mine was a guy that just socially it was a little bit harder for him. And so people liked the, the bullying. And some kid just came up to him and thought he had done something wrong. And he just went, just punched him. And I just sat there. And my thought was, you know, I didn't do anything. My thought was, I, I just hope I don't get punched. You know, my thought was that I, I want to make sure, you know, I sort of, sort of jockey, use my Hoberg charm. You know, and at one point he was like, you know, he looked at me and said, no, you're cool, Hoberg, that's all right. And I felt like such a coward, right? Their shame and guilt. Well, the disciples, right? Failure of nerve. Failure of nerve. Peter declares, even if everybody else falls away, I'll never fall away. He denies Jesus three times. Guards come, they all scatter. John did make it back to the cross. He's present at the cross, but the rest of them probably were not there. Or maybe they're hiding from far away. One, we're told, actually fled away naked. He only had a linen ephod on, and they ripped it, and he said, I'm just going to run. They were in terror. 
But if they were to remember the words of Jesus, they would have had hope because at the very time Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him and they would scatter, he also said this. He said, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And that was a word to them that even though they failed, the relationship would not be cut off. There would be reconciliation between the two. And here you have the mention of Galilee. There's two things about Galilee that, that bring to mind that we should know. First of all, how it represented reconciliation. And the angels say you know, to the women, I want you to go and tell his disciples. They're still his disciples, even though they abandoned. But Jesus even goes further. What does he say? I want you to go tell my brothers. My brothers. That I'll meet them in Galilee. And from this, the resurrection confirms something that Peter didn't get. That the basis of their relationship with Jesus was never their faithfulness and love. It was always his faithfulness and love. That was always the basis of it. And the resurrection of Jesus would confirm that. The New Testament says that He lives to intercede for us. That He lives to be an advocate when we sin. He is resurrected for that very purpose. And what does that mean? You and I need to learn the art of running backward when we sin. When we sin, we run away from God. We need to run back to Him. We run into alienation, but we're to run into reconciliation. Christ is raised for that purpose in his flesh, in his body. He is the visible demonstration that you are brother, you are sister. It's not about your performance. I don't know if you feel today much like a son or daughter. It doesn't matter. If, you try, if Jesus is raised and you believe in Jesus, you are a son and a daughter. Amen? And there's also a cross-cultural side of this too. Because as the church would come together, what would happen? That brother and sister would fan out across people groups and ethnicities that hated one another. Because it would be a, a global, a pan-ethnic brotherhood. Family. The real sign of the resurrection, you know, we, we hope to be a cross-cultural church and believe in the resurrection. But the sign of a church that really believes in the resurrection is it's making progress cross-culturally. Because Jesus rose from the dead that he might collect brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Which gets us to the last thing about Galilee. Galilee is the place where they not only meet Jesus, but they receive their commission as ambassadors and they're given their worldwide mission. Now, imagine you're working for somebody. Working for a boss and uh, you blow it. There's a little power struggle in the company, and you get on the wrong side. You try to get him fired. He rises out on top. Or maybe you take some you know, sensitive information and you share it with a competitor, whatever it is, but he finds out. And you're, you, know, you figure you're going to be banished. He, he says this, I'm not going to banish you. You're forgiven, and you can remain at the company, but you never will advance. I mean, for us, that would be terrible. Right? This idea that I'm forgiven but I can't really participate in the mission. You see what it was for them when not only they show up at Galilee, and it said some worshipped and some still doubted, and there they are before Jesus, and Peter hadn't been reconciled probably just, I don't know how many days. It's still fresh in their mind, but then Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Now go and be my disciples. 
They get to be part of the greatest job in the world. They're not only restored, but they're given the greatest calling in the world. This is the beauty of the gospel. Christ is raised up. You not only get to be forgiven and accepted, but do you understand what you've been called to? As he met you in Galilee, have you heard that call? That you're an ambassador. You've got the greatest job in the world if you're a Christian. You're not on the sidelines. You're in the game. And so this Easter, the resurrection offers us power and reconciliation. Let's take advantage of the faith that we've been given. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Christ. We thank You for His resurrection. We thank You for what it means to be reconciled to You. And we thank You, God, for the power it gives us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you.